Now the last of our talks um, is about elitism, British modernism and Wyndham Lewis and it's by me. Now Wyndham Lewis is a paradoxical figure in all sorts of ways because you could argue on one trajectory, certainly from a very traditional and perennialist one, that Lewis is actually a part of everything that exists now. He was an ultra-modernist and an arch-modernist. Indeed, he founded the only meaningfully indigenous modernist movement called Vorticism in these islands. And yet Lewis was also an ultra-right-wing and hierarchical figure. So in a way, my interpretation of Wyndham Lewis, who died in the 1950s, and so we've now got quite a perspective on, on him of at least half a century, is that he was a man who believed in a right-wing version of what we can now call the modernist project. Now, what did they want? One of the ironies and conceits about modernism is that it's in some respects new. It's been around since the middle of the 19th century, and there are predecessors in all sorts of currents of art that predate that. Lewis believed in a Promethean way that the world could be made again, and this was because, in a sense, he was a Nietzschean, and one of his first published articles was The Code of a Herdsman. And this is the idea that the artist comes down from the mountain and communes with the masses, often by using masks, often by using stratagems, often by manipulating them, by bullying them, by attacking them, by working on them, and trying to raise them and their level. One of the things about Lewis is Lewis is totally opposed to entertainment, quote-unquote and the idea that the artist has to sell himself to the mass of people, particularly through commercial middlemen. This has had an unfortunate consequence, because a large number of Lewis's books are entertaining and very readable, but many of them are deliberately rebarbative and are an attack on the audience. Now, the Apes of God is an attack. Childermass, for example, which was published in 1928, and is the part of an enormous sort of tetralogy, um, only three parts of which were written and his attempts to deal in a Heideggerian way, without any of Heidegger's discourse, with ultimate matters of life and death and purpose. Lewis was a great artist, flawed in some ways, but great because he attempted to reach the stars. His view of art was almost that it should be a religion for secular, postmodern man. He had an enormous amount of energy. He wrote 50 books, he painted at least 200 very large canvases, a significant number of which are in the Tate Gallery and elsewhere, and owned by major museums across the world, like the Guggenheim, the Peabody Museum, and so forth. He's probably the only figure that we have in early 20th century British high culture who combines painting and writing, very different discourses that come out of completely different parts of the brain, in one individual. He comes out of the 19th century, he knew virtually every major cultural and artistic figure in the British Isles and beyond during his lifespan. He met every great modernist from Picasso onwards. He met every great politician, with whom, including Sir Oswald Mosley, with whom, of course, he was reasonably intimately politically associated. One of the reasons Lewis is less fashionable than the Gang of Four, as they're called, namely Yeats and Eliot and Pound, the men of 1914, is was because he has never been forgiven for some of the political uh, discourses that he came out with at particular times. Now, this is rather remarkable, because Powell was put in an insane, insane asylum after the Second World War, where sort of he's the poison of uh, alleged treachery to the United States of America by virtue of his allegiance with Mussolini in Italy, was virtually sort of burnt out of him through sort of heresy duty shock treatment. Um, and Elliot went into the bosom of the Anglo-Catholic, Anglican and Tory establishment in this country, despite his American birth. And Yeats, of course, more than made his peace, but was a part of the new Irish Republican dispensation in the state that became the Irish Republic after De Valera and was the free state before. It's arguable who was the more right-wing amongst these particular people. And Yeats, in many ways, really can't be considered to be a modernist, although he was most alive to Lewis's talents uh, at certain times, partly because of his extraordinary ability satirically. And Yeats deeply admired that tradition from Swift through to Lewis, and that canvas is a sort of negative, harsh, critical, and yet poetic discourse in our culture, which manifests itself through the savagery of an evil in war, through the poetry of the Churchill of many centuries ago, who was a member of the Hellfire Club 
through Nash's prose, for example, uh, Lewis is an outsider, and he always styled himself as such. He adopted various strategies, which in turn relate to the wearing of masks, and in further go back to his little credo, the code of a herdsman. One of the masks that he liked to wear was that of the enemy. The enemy of received values and opinions. And although it wasn't entirely articulated in this way, he fought against liberalism in the arts and in general culture all of his life. In 1926, he wrote a book called The Art of Being Ruled, which is a genuinely extraordinary book, because he predicted many things which were from so far off the agenda then that very few people had thought of them. And indeed, this book was regarded as slightly madcap, even in its era. It looks at theories through George Sorrell, it looks at theories through Charles Moore, but in the end, it's Lewis's thesis that ultimately, in the West, if we don't watch it, and it had partly arrived in Weimar Germany and contemporary pre-depression Britain anyway, we will have left-wing capitalism. And this was a heterodox and absurdist thesis in the 1920s, which people, in partly sophisticated Marxian critics and so on, laughed to scorn. But we have all around us a global, itemised, left-leaning capitalist order. And Lewis's real view was that you've got this strange combination between thinking that conservatives of a more rigid type, of a less modernistic and futurist and energy-based type, as he would configure it, have always been bemused by. Even politically today, you sense this, that many conservatives think that they're sort of running the world, and yet they're alienated from the very streets that they walk through. And they have this odd double take in relation to reality. They feel that culturally, instinctively, they've lost everywhere, and yet history tells them that they've triumphed over communism, over state socialism and dirigism and so on. But Lewis's real point is that the market is the greatest egalitarian leveller that has ever been developed, and that more rigid and quote-unquote conservative structures stately to enforce egalitarianism aren't really necessary, because the market will do it for you. If you decide taste, or concepts of beauty, or honour, or national pride, or elitism, or voluntarism, and you have a plebiscitary vote through tickets of commerce via the market, you will always get a lumpen and a reasonably levelled down and dribblish answer. Now, Lewis's career began uh, really with his studentship at the Slave College of Art, which is now part of University College London. The most famous fellow student when he was there was Augustus John, whose sister Gwen John was also a famous um, painter, and in turn was Rodin's mistress for a while. Now, they clashed quite considerably, and Augustus to this day is regarded in a sense as an academic artist. Freed up maybe, uh, romantic and energetic in spirit, but still largely loyal to naturalistic portraiture and traditional Western art. Lewis broke, even when he was a sort of uh, late student at the Slave College in the centre of London, with all of that. Lewis was probably linked conceptually to the formalists and constructivists in pre-Soviet Russia. We're talking about the proto-Soviet revolution of 1906, um, long before the Bolsheviks had even been heard of on the world historical stage. Now, the interesting thing about Lewis is that Lewis creates for a period the most savage and the most modernistic art possible. And yet in a later phase, he rejects it. Because in the early 1950s, he published a book called The Demon of Progress in the Arts, which was actually, which has never been reprinted, incidentally, and which is actually a criticism of many of the tendencies that he himself helped to create 50 years before. But the criticism is because his view of culture is essentially energy-related and discourse-riven. He believes that you can take modern culture and adopt a rightist view of it by hierarchicalizing it and by dinning it into the masses through every organ of propaganda. He basically believes that you can have a right-wing modernist culture, essentially. When he saw that by the middle of the 20th century, Modernism, which initially a lot of liberal humanism was reluctant to touch, and except for isolated individuals, reluctant to embrace in the way that we now have. If you step back and watch a television screen today about art and artistic matters, people will tell you that the Turner Prize is received culture. It's the culture that New Labour and Cool Britannia endorses. You have to step back in time when these sorts of discourses which have led to that point were much more fugitive, much more formative. Um, 
in a way there's a subtext of the politics of art in the 20th century which has never really been explored. Whenever modernism is taught in universities, the political partiality of many early modernists, Céline in relation to writing, certainly ultra-modernist writing of the sort exemplified by Beckett or Joyce, Pound in relation to the hard-edged, semi-classical early modernity of his images movement, and many, many of the others, their incorrectness politically is always slightly alighted over. They are crucial to the modernist project and experiment, and they therefore cannot be voided from it. But there is a reluctance to admit where their politics began and where it ended. There's a school of what's called deconstruction, which is a late type of linguistic theory, whereby all culture is considered to be relative and a play of words and signifiers. It's the latest of the most destructive types of critical theory which have convulsed the Western Academy during the course of the 20th century. Now, this school produced uh, a particular variant in the United States, uh, the College of Yale, and is known as the Yale School of Deconstruction. Frederick Jameson, who was a prominent professor there, wrote a book on Wyndham Lewis called Wyndham Lewis, The Modernist as Fascist. And, of course, that in itself is a paradox, because to many minds... The radical right and modernity, or radical modernism, would appear, superficially speaking, to be antithetical. Yet all of these ultra-modernists that I've just listed, in their early formulations, at the beginning of the 20th century, a hundred years ago, were ultra-right-wing and were anti-democratic. Why have artistic movements that were championed by many of these people and other lesser lights of a similar ilk come to mean the exact reverse of what they postulated a century on? without falling back into traps like the quote-unquote revolution betrayed, and so forth. In many ways it's complicated, and a particular key text that we need to look at is a Spanish work by Ortega Agasse called The Dehumanisation of Art, which was one of the earliest statements of right-wing modernism. In this work, this particular Spanish philosopher says that he likes a modern art, which is a break from the past and is an attack upon the sensibility of the people. He likes modernism because the people don't like it. He likes it because it sort of looks like material that's landed from outer space, essentially. He likes it because it's misanthropic and because there's a strong element of that in artistic creativity. This is a very insightful point because if you ever move in the circles of the arts, the bulk of the geological trajectory is and has remained well to the left. But if you associate with a lot of artistic people for a long time, you realise that art isn't really about an empty-minded and globalist love of humanity. All artists compete savagely with each other, they're obsessed, many of them, with fame, and although they're not materialistic people, they'll take what they can, where they can get it. And there's a sort of interesting inhumanism about all custodians of beauty, even if certain people, both absolutely and relatively, don't believe that what they're producing is beauty. Now, the modern movement, in a sense, became by default the cultural vanguard of contemporary liberal humanism because the radical right has become associated retrospectively with the aesthetic discourse of National Socialist Germany, which was neoclassical, and looking back. Whereas the partial modernisms that were partly agglomerated into the states of an authoritarian rightist character in Portugal and in Spain and in Italy are partly being shunted to the side or disprivileged. Let's take the Soviet example and its many satellites throughout the Second and Third World now, now many of them collapsed in the century that's just passed. Soviet art up until 1928 embraced the most revolutionary and the most radical and the most destructive currents of prior form and brought them all in despite Lenin's avowed personal distaste for a lot of it, but he welcomed these modern movements that they broke up that which existed before, because before you build a new house, you must dynamite what's there before and put in new foundations so that there can be a new structure. There's a famous conversation between Gorky and Lenin, where Gorky allegedly said to Lenin, what do you think of all this modern stuff, you know, colloquially? And Lenin said, I can't stand it, but we must support it because it destroys. The interesting thing is that in 1928, of course, the Stalinist dispensation after Trotsky's purging uh, and the purging of his left opposition from the Soviet Communist Party reversed this cultural flow. And a cultural restoration of traditional artistry came sweeping in. And many of the modernists who saw the way the wind was blowing suddenly altered the way that they composed and wrote poetry and wrote novels and so on to fit in with this new wave. 
Now in the middle of this, liberal humanism, which deep down has had many, many doubts about the elitism and the misanthropy of elements of the modernist project, post-Second World War cleaved to radical modernity, and you see a click all over the world, whereby the most unlikely cultural people, from sort of Prince Philip onwards, uh, events are liking for modernist painting and sculpture. You see it almost as a glacial thing, right across the Western establishment. Um, there was even a deeper subtext to this, because in the early 1950s, the Central Intelligence Agency, believe it or not, actually put money into the sponsorship of abstract expressionism. Now you can imagine these bullet-headed types, things sort of Georgetown and stuff, and CIA based in Langley, Virginia, holding abstract expressionist paintings upside down, who knows which way they're up, you know, and wondering how many dollars they should invest in this sort of thing. And they, were, they bought into an ideology about this, that the Soviet Union was restrictive and reactionary and wanted to go back where sunny America was the new uplands of freedom and participation and democracy and everyone could throw the paint on and do what they liked. And we were for freedom, not these old high-bound forms, and you can see them not really agreeing with it but thinking it was a good propaganda line. And so by a strange sort of reverse process in the liberal West, which is now post the Soviet Union's collapsed, superficially triumphed all over modernity, a levelling down to the lowest common denominator of the pre-war modernist space, or virtual reality space, or moral cyberspace, has occurred. So in a way, all of the early modernists who wanted a new world and were full of energy and belief and anger and pain and power as beauty, which is what this modernist aesthetic really amounted to, have fallen away. And we're left with something like the Turner Prize, um, which is sort of um, is interesting and yet ironic because, of course, this prize indicates the fact that modernism has died and died quite far back in the 20th century in terms of its own internal vitality, never mind any attributions that may be put upon it from the outside. There's an art critic and academic and curator called Susie Gablick, who's married to John Russell, who's quite a well-known art critic and historian. He was art critic on the New York Times for many years, wrote books on Syrah, on Bacon, on this sort of thing. Now, she wrote a book in the 1970s called Has Modernism Failed? Question mark. And like a lot of academics, she couldn't make her mind up. So she presented the case, and she had presented the evidence, and she left the sort of the terminal paragraph, the one where you have to bite the bullet and ask the, answer the question, has modernism really died vacant? But it was quite clear from the profiling of the evidence that the belief that there could be a new world, that man could be energised and transformed by art, that art could be meshed with technology, so as to create sort of cyborgs of the real, or the hyper-real, and that we could take a new evolutionary leap by virtue of these sorts of discourses, characterised by vorticism, Britain, Cubism, France, Surrealism, France, Expressionism, Germany, Futurism, Italy, and so on and so forth, with all sorts of various tendencies, um, has failed and hasn't come to pass. With a movement like André Breton Surrealism, an enormous number of shards and interconnected sort of revolutionary and pseudo-revolutionary movements came out of that as it collapsed. Lecturism, situationism, tiny little groups of small numbers of people, but actually strangely influential because when many of the Paris students rioted in 1968, and this is called a new right group, and of course the new right as a conception was essentially, if things have a foundation, a foundation created by Alain de Benoit and other intellectuals of the ultra-right as a response to the rioting in 1968. Because these people had taken over the streets and were rioting with the CRS and blood was flowing in the streets. And they were printing, they were putting slogans on walls saying, imagine, or we want everything to be different, or a revolution of, against all values that currently exist. An odd take, if they but knew it, on a Nietzschean phrase of uh, more than half a century before. And so these students were replicating radical modernist ideas, albeit at the level of street slogans, and don't forget, graffiti on billboards now sells in Sotheby's. Today, I've been in exhibitions in Sotheby's, and Christie's, and Bonham's, and Carter's, and Phillips, and all the others, and graffiti, graffiti art it's called, is there praised by liberals as an expression of the urban masses and the vitality of lump and proletarian exclusion. 
aesthetically stated. And so, a trajectory that begins with hierarchical elitists who wanted a new world has ended with the art, in quotation marks, of Basilids and of Basquiat and of these sorts of people. And for those who don't know, uh, Basquiat was um, a sort of mulatto um, rent boy and drug addict who was taken by Andy Warhol and made into a considerable artist. And this was brought into, considerable in terms of financial um, access to profit through the um, selling of his texts of oppression, which consisted, oh, I could do one now. I could do a basket for you. You get a big piece of paper. You have a couple of police cars coming to drag you away. Racism. You have a small sort of black man being dragged off. And you write, racism! <laughs> and you, write, you put a little flower on the end to say racism allied to the possibility of uh, sexual identity oppression. I want $40,000 for it. Well, you know, and somebody would stand in between the person who wants to buy it and say, you're buying into pain, you're buying into redemption, you're buying into modernity, it may actually not really be your taste, you may actually think it's rubbish that he pulled up in ten minutes, but buy into it because it might be worth something in the future, um, and at the same time, it relates to ideas about art. And one of the interesting things about modernity, um, and Lewis's role in it, which we shall get back to in a minute, because modernism has to be discussed, in a way, because it's an extraordinarily complicated area, and Lewis is a very interesting and problematical figure, the one and the other. But what modernism has led to is a fracturing and a dissonance of things, and of prior organic forms. It released an enormous amount of energy, it was a volcano and an explosion. It has now died. It's really died in our art for about 40 years. Because when the Turner Prize goes to the sun and replicates to the masses who know nothing about art whatsoever, that this is the coming stuff, it's several levels of lies and audacity piled on one another. <laughs> Damien Hurst. That's, ta uh, that's taxidermy. It relates to the ready-made. Warhol did that. The Dardiest after the Great War did that. Duchamp specialised in that. Duchamp went to a gallery with a urinal, which he just bought in a Parisian free market, and said, this is art? And the chap said, well, you know, I'm not quite too sure about that. And he said, look, I found it, it's purposeful, it's in front of me, we use it for a physiological purpose, how dare you deny in your authoritarian subjectivism that this is art? And the bloke said, how much do you want? And that's how it started, you see. Um, but they say the Turner Prize is original. Let's look at um, The Unmade Bed by Tracy Emin. Now this again is a form of a ready-made. It's again a form of a text. I've had a life. I've had this abortion. And not me personally, Tracy Emin. You know. And there's a degree to which uh, I've had this done to me. Notice that this is an inversion of every artistic credo. Because art is something you objectify outside yourself. It's not something that's done to you. It's something that you leave. You leave an object. You leave a trace. You even to use Beckett's terminology, you stain the silence. It's external to oneself. She just says, I'm in pain. You know, and that sort of thing that's considered almost an artistic statement, or this is my unmade bed. One of the more interesting ones, though, in this sort of dying world is something called Mark Quinn. Now, many of you who have wandered around Trafalgar Square recently will have seen something by Mark Quinn, because on the fourth um, pedestal, which they can't decide what to fill, he has a 13-tonne, a 13-tonne sculpture of a pregnant Thalidomide woman. You must have seen it if you've been to, to Trafalgar Square. It's called, um, it's Alison Lapp, who's pregnant, and Thalidomide. And naked. And naked, even better. And, in a way, what Quinn is doing is Quinn is actually, in a strange way, this will be denounced 50 to years ago by ultra-left critics within modernist art, he is actually smuggling in certain representational and neoclassical features, even as mockery, into the discourse. You have to understand that in the middle of the 20th century, partly because of the Second World War and its aftermath, there was a hysteria in the contemporary arts. If anyone painted in a representational way, they could and were hounded out of colleges. They were howled down at conferences. Certain of the art was, in a sense, disprivileged to the degree it was conceptually destroyed, even if it still exists in some garage or attic somewhere. Anyone who said that they were in favour of beauty was regarded as, quote-unquote, a Nazi, or a conceptual Nazi, or an aesthetic Nazi. And the irony is that that sort of extremism, of course, 
but the market, because ultimately there was a reductio ad absurdum here. With many of the abstract expressionist painters before big museums came in for their work, many private dealers were exhausted, if you like, and didn't want to buy any more. And a new movement was found called pop art, which was sort of recidivistically popular. It sort of, um, it, it rejected Clement Greenberg's theories, he was the main theorist of ex abstract expressionism, and they went back to Batman, if you like. You know, they, they went for stuff the masses would like, because you could sell it, and many dealers around the world thought, thank God for that, we've got something that's recognisable, and that's popular, and that we can invest in again. So that was actually a retreat from ultra-modernist hysteria in relation to the sheer capitalism of contemporary art. Many people wonder why pictures sell, not just old masters, but many contemporary pictures sell for such ludicrously large amounts of money, if one is frank about it, bearing in mind that 10% of all artworks are forged, in every category, at least, and everyone in the art business knows that, and the former head of Sotheby's, Mr. Taubman, was placed in prison in the United States of America, despite saying he had 36 grandchildren and had to take 26 pills a day in order to live because he had set up a corrupt cartel to prevent other people dealing with Sotheby's and Christie's in art. But art, some people wanted it to be a religion that can, in comparison to the post-Christianity of the contemporary era. Other people see it as an investment for life because artistic works have become a currency for the ultra-rich and they are actually very little looked upon or viewed. They're stored in warehouses, they're stored in bank vaults. Many of the people uh, never look at them. Anassis bought things, put them on his yachts, never looked at them again, even though millions of dollars have been expended on them. There was an enormous fire at the Saatchi warehouse in Leighton in East London a couple of years ago that burnt down most of the collection of Brit art, and the Saatchi's share price fell slightly, but um, the Chapmans, who were famous for interconnected labyrinths of quasi-pedophile dolls, which they glued together, said, we can do another one. Damn quick! And Saatchi said right away, and the several new ones um, appeared. But back to Wyndham Lewis, the uh, nominal top uh, subject of my talk. Now, Lewis, in my view, is a, is, a, is a great genius within the culture that I've just described. His first major novel was a novel called Tar, which of course is an anagram for art and rat, because... Um, Lewis always liked the aggressive side to artistry. He always liked the fact that, in some ways, he was attacking the audience, although he didn't really accord with left-wing ideas that he attacked the audience. The one thing you have to remember with Lewis is that Lewis was pathologically anti-bourgeois, and he was totally opposed to what he would do regard as the culture of sentimentality. You've got to smash the face of the bourgeois with your fist. This was his view. He's a right-winger, but he's not really a conservative at all. He's a revolutionary right-winger the mediocrity of the majority of people, their total absence of taste. He wants to shake them by the throat. It's a very aggressive form of culture, and Lewis was, perforce, a very aggressive man. Pound once called him Windam, with a hyphen, because he was always casting an atom on everybody. And although Lewis, despite his termagant nature, was one of the few people who wouldn't break from Pound when he was incarcerated in a prison, which was an asylum, and when the lights were on 24 hours a day, as he was trying to write the Pisan Cantos, just because he'd appeared on Italian radio. So, Lewis remained loyal to his friends, but his first novel was Tar. He expected to die in the Great War, and he fought at the front, and he fought in the Battle of Passchendaele. Lewis regarded the First World War as a revolution in the soul of man. He didn't think it was a war. He thought it was a climactic moment whereby machine technology invasively entered the human space. You would see a thousand men charged towards some enclave, and two would be left afterwards and their bones would be showered miles behind you because of the impact of the violence that was coming down on them. Lewis turned to people afterwards and said, this isn't a war. You know, it's something else. It's the mass industrialization of death within modernity. And he believed, as much of that generation did, that those who went through this were never the same. And one of the reasons, if you like, for the radicality of his modernism and his belief that everything should be changed is the belief of that generation, in part, that everything should be changed after what they'd been through. They were only going to come back here and listen to the old men preaching about the same old stuff. They wanted a new world. And, of course, one of the people who wanted a new world was Oswald Mosley, beginning his class, squirearchical terms as a Tory, then shifting over to the left wing of the Labour Party as the depression of the late 20s and early 30s loomed. And Lewis formed a bit of a cultural alliance with Mosley, although, like all intellectuals and bohemians, 
Lewis was very wary about getting into bed with anyone. He wrote for British Union Quarterly, which was one of the uh, BUS magazines of the 1930s, but he always kept a certain distance. But in the texts themselves, you can detect the fact that, the, like the other great modernists, Yeats and Pound and Eliot, Lewis has been demonised less because of association, less because of organisational joining or not joining, less because he spoke to this person or not, but because the texts are, in some respects, more right-wing, are more remedially and recidivistically incorrect, in inverted commas, than any of the others. Lewis's great thesis throughout this whole range of books, such as The Art of Being Ruled in 26, such as the satire on Bloomsbury and Sitwell domination of the arts in the media space, The Apes of God, in 1913, such as his analysis through the prism of Pareto and Machiavelli of the tragedies of Shakespeare, The Lion and the Fox, such as the short story collection, which came before the Great War, but that he actually brought into the post-Great War period and reworked and re-edited and reformulated and produces The Wild Body in 1927-28, and an enormous number of other texts, such as satirical texts, which he'd almost write in half an afternoon. They were just countless. There were 18th century devices of splenetism and rage, The Doom of Youth, which is actually based on a text by Evelyn War's brother, Alec War, called The Loom of Youth, and was about homosexuality in public schools. And an enormous number of right-wing, quote-unquote, pamphlets, which Lewis considered as destroyers, strange panzers that he allowed to loom up into some field and go careering over a cliff. One of them were the two pacifist works written in the 1930s against war with Germany, which was then quite apparent. One was called um, Left Wings Over Europe, and another was called Count Your Dead! Dash, they are alive. You know, they're polemical works, essentially. Another book that caused a great deal of problem, uh, problems for everybody, which is almost completely forgotten now, is a book called The Jews Are They Human? Question mark. <laughs> which was actually based on a funny book. Um, a, a book which was a sort of an Alan Corrin book of the time, called The English Are They Human? by a German satirist. Um, this is one of the many, many problems. We live in such a relative cultural space that things are com taken completely out of context because there is no context from which to take them. Because you have to understand context, go back to another one, realise that it was in it, and relate it to something that was different. Another very controversial text about race called Pale Face, which is an attack actually on the cult of the primitive in the works of people like uh, D.H. Lawrence. Lawrence and Lewis had a standing hostility to each other. And this is very ironic, but also metaphysically true. Because Lawrence is a pagan and a vitalist, but in some ways really a perennial heathen and traditionalist. And Lewis is a violent eruptor of modern discourse. And although not a subjectivist and a relativist in pure terms, he is a Nietzsche and he believes that there is a separation between the modern and that which has preceded it. In a sense, what he's saying subjectively in terms of his teleology in a way is the idea that we don't know absolute truth. Absolute truths exist, otherwise everything is meaningless. But we cannot entirely configure them in our own destiny. We arrive at the understanding of the possibility of their configuration through struggle, through life, through dialectic, through reordering the energy within matter. It's the difference, if you like, between Nietzsche and Evelyn. And that's why the two of them would clash in the way that they did. And they detested each other, basically. Indeed, in Dave Lawrence's um, Lady Chapel's Lover, the depiction of um, her husband as a First World War veteran who's sort of castrated in a way, and she goes for a more virile man in the gamekeeper, Mellors, and the fact that he likes this tubular modernist art that Lawrence feels is disgusting and maggoty and technologically based and without purpose, is amongst many things a satire on elements of the culture that Lewis represented. Don't forget, the great novelists and artists never pick somebody and say, that's Wyndham Lewis, I'm going to do a hatchet job on him. They use what Al Anthony Burgess in the post-war period called sense data. They take from 20 or 30 different sources and amalgamate an individual together. Now, in order to make a point, but it's a synthetic creation that's worked on the way that a writer will work on a number of manuscripts, one, two, three. One of our previous speakers talked about Henry Williamson. He would actually rework and work nine times before it went to the printer, and so on. So, Lewis and Lawrence quarrelled bitterly, because Lewis was a quarreller who quarrelled with everybody. 
and one of his first cultural manifestos and explosions that launched the Vortices movement with Pound and others, with Saunders, with Dismore, with, their, with Roberts, and with all sorts of other people, Nevinson, who later went with a futurist current more closely aligned with Marinetti, was one of the most famous and infamous magazines in Britain in the 20th century. It was called Blast. Blast. Issues 1, 2, and 3, because it came out of the Great War and came out of the energy of the Great War. Certain people were blasted, others were blessed, and this sort of thing, and this dialectical of, uh, dialectic of approval and disapproval. And basically, Lewis was arguing for an authoritarian society based on Hellenistic norms, seen through the mist of contemporary technology. By Hellenistic norms, I mean that although there will be discourses such as uh, continuing Christianity and so on, that a degree of scepticism based on the possibility of truth is cardinal, in other words, freedom of thinking and genuine expression, not of the sort we get in the mass media now, is cardinal to Western identity and to Western thinking. One of Lewis's books in the middle career was Men Without Art, which is a sort of, again, a satire on Hemingway's book, Men Without Women. He would often take a title like this, wrench it out of its bearings, reformulate it in a molten sort of way. Everything with him comes back to Nietzschean ideas, because he believes that you work on a brain, you work on a text, you work on a mind before you. Everything's molten, and you sort of reconstitute it and create new forms and throw them out, and then it's on to the next one. It's a sort of a Promethean attitude. Um, a slightly demonic attitude in many respects, and he wouldn't have hidden from that. But when he produced um, The Demon of Progress in the Arts in the early 1950s, one, he was beginning to go blind, which of course for an artist and for an intensely visual person is a great affliction, possibly the greatest one there can be. He had a particular type of cancer that came behind the nose and pressed upon the optic nerves and gradually dulled both eyes, and you lost secondary vision, everything became misted, and finally they went. It's exactly the condition that John Milton had many centuries before. Now, when he was going blind, the one interesting thing about Lewis, because of his Nietzschean credo, was a total absence of sentimentality. There was no pity for the other, but there was no pity for himself either. One of the cardinal prerequisites, is true with a man like Bill Hopkins, who I discussed in one of my last talks, is the total absence of the ethic of self-pity. When he went blind, he was a reviewing for the listener at that time, reviewing fine art, and he just had a one-line paragraph saying, I can no longer review because I am blind, Lewis. And that was it. A journalist, because uh, the pervasive pressure of middle-brow journalism that states as uh, it knows everything, but actual, in actual fact is postulating on a tiny degree of knowledge, was already well underway in the culture of the 1950s. A journalist said to him, oh, Mr. Lewis, are you going to write anything more? And Lewis said, how dare you? How dare you say I'm not going to write anything more? He said, if I could see you, I'd throttle you. He said, the lamp of aggressive voltage has turned inside. The mind has many mansions. And he was offered a choice by his doctors, because the sort of cancer he had can be eradicated now by laser, laser surgery. But the doctors, because he distrusted all doctors, he regarded them all as quacks, so he'd get ten, ten opinions and then become confused. But the general melting down of the opinions was that if you went in with a knife, bluntly, to get this cancer out from underneath the brain, you would damage the brain. And Lewis said, life is the brain. Better to lose the sight than the mind. After he went blind, he wrote five books, six books, and two were uncompleted on his death. Um, including an enormously major work that in some respects, given the contemporary and rather faddish vote for fantasy literature, has never received the kudos that it should, at least in my opinion. This is this Human Age trilogy, which is based on Dante's Inferno, because often when you want to go forward, you go back. Because when you confront death, and you confront ontology and being and purpose and meaning and absolute values, what are we here for? Is there any purpose? Will there be life after death? What can we expect? Does life have an ultimate meaning? Or is it contingent and purposeless and valueless? And we just choose one for ourselves, which is essentially all that Sartre's theory really boils down to. And Lewis began this enormous work with the Childermast in 1928, which was an extremist modernist book. Um, I read it three times. It's incredibly difficult read, really, because he's attacking the reader the whole time. He writes these sentences where 
the stress is between the punctuation marks in such a way as that the majority of people will give it up after a couple of pages, and he almost wants them to. But when he goes blind, it becomes a lot more accessible because you've got to write in a much more linear way. He said he used a dictaphone, but this isn't true. What he would do is he would have a board on his knee, he would put a ruler with rubber bands on either end, he would have a pen, borrows were coming in, I suppose, and he would get to one end, and he would go back, and he would go back, and he would go back, and he would fill page and page and page, and then throw it on the floor. And Fran and his wife would collect them up, and they'd be tight and collated. Now, obviously, a certain slackness and a little bit of repetition enters in when you're creating in that way, and few people had the temerity to suggest to... Uh, uh, w. Lewis Esquire that there should be any changes but these are still an extraordinary series of works given the state that he was in physically when he created them now this particular series of works consists of the Children Mass which is his version of Limbo and we'll come on to that in a minute and you've got Malign Fiesta which is his version of Purgatory no, you've got Monster Guy which is his version of Purgatory and you've got Malign Fiesta which is his version of Hell Lewis is very interested in hell and fascinated by it. And the devil in the human age is Samael. That's the, uh, the, the uh, diabolical personification. Who paradoxically, in a sort of reversal of the, um, the figure known as the devil's advocate in the Roman Catholic Church during the period of ordination before somebody like the previous pontiff is going to become a saint. Lewis argues against his own positions because he gives many of his best positions to Samael and then argues against them in the work. If you ever come across it, the avant-garde 60s publisher, Jean Calder, published Malign Fiesta, and it is an unbelievable book, in my opinion. Towards the end of his life, residually, his mother's Catholicism loomed rather large. For most of his life, of course, he'd been a nominal atheist because of his Nietzschean pedicus. But as death approached... And because of his reception by Catholic priests in Canada, um, where he was in exile during the Second World War, partly as a protest against the war, partly as a result of sort of looming financial chaos and a desire to get out of Britain. Because in a way, he'd warned against the looming war for 30 to 40 years. And now it had happened. He didn't really want a part of it. He wrote a novel called The Vulgar Street, which is about forgery in the arts. A the idea of forgery always fascinated Lewis the idea of fakes and how people can buy into it as discourse and aesthetic value. There's also a book which he wrote, which is in, King, which is in Penguin Classics, Penguin English, modern Penguin Classics at this, at this moment, and which is called Revenge for Love, and which is an anti-communist satire, one of the more humanistic books that Lewis wrote. It wasn't just anti-humanism in theory, there was a more developed psychological side to his oeuvre as well. One also should mention his painting which of course began to dwindle away as his blindness increased and became more severe. Um, the paintings of the First World War hang in the Imperial War Museum, and most of them are in the public uh, exhibition space. So if you're ever in that museum, which of course is based uh, where the old Bedlam Hospital used to be, wander around and have a look. Uh, his most famous one is Canadian Gunpit, because although completely British by adoption, he was born off, his, off Nova Scotia in his father's yacht. And there is something primordial and new world-ish about the energy that quite a few of these moderns had at the beginning of the 20th century. Canadian-Americans, in this context, makes the difference. Pound, Eliot, Lewis, all very different men, but they were the classicism of the old world coming back to the old world via the new world. And they did come back with some of its fire in the belly, it has to be said. But he didn't enjoy his experience in Canada and was pleased to return. He wrote a book uh, of short stories about Notting Hill, which of course was a, beginning to be a centre of third world immigration, even his, in his time, after the passage of the Labour Nationality Act in 1948. It was called Rotting Hill, not Notting Hill, which was a joke between him and Ezra Pound at the time. I think the one text which demonised and did for Lewis's behaviour, post-war and pre-war, is a book he wrote almost in half a year, just as journalism, almost with the speed and rapidity of talk. And this was a book called Hitler, which he wrote in 1931 and was published by Chateau and Vendors in 1933. He was invited, as many writers are, to go and see this movement that was making waves in Germany, to report, to produce a text and come back, and they publish it with just a bit of minor editing. And they did. And this book uh, was uh, one of the few books that actually... Um, Contemporary 
British writers produced that was actually reproduced uh, under Goebbels' uh, ministry once the government had come in after 1933. Even though as always with Lewis, because Lewis is always critical, always against, always sort of never completely supports any position, even his own, up to a point. As Nietzsche once said, believe totally in your own philosophy and then have the odd doubt. Only to maximise the gap that you can then transgress when you return to the sureness of your own faith. So, as always, Lewis is a very uncomfortable man and a very uncomfortable bedfellow. In the 1930s, he used to go to a very establishment parties with Lady Abercrombie and these sort of grand dame hostesses and so on. And if people weren't paying him attention, he'd produce a pistol and put it on the table. And she'd come round circling and give him some chat and scoop the gun into her handbag. You know, but it was essentially because he was a sort of uh, a histrionic artist. He always wanted to be at the centre of the vortex. He founded the vortices movement, and he always wanted to be at the centre of his own vortex, if you saw what I mean. He did appear in many fascinating novels, even by people who hated his guts, and there were quite a few of them. Um, there's a novel by Huxley, one of his sort of chrome yellow type novels, you know, with the sort of uh, reissued in the 70s and 80s with Tamara de Lempica covers. And... Um, uh, there's a Sitwell, an Edith Sitwell novel, largely forgotten today. Because Lewis was a fascinating character. Six foot tall, eagle-eyed, used to wear this enormous Spanish sombrero's hat, tilted slightly to the side, he used to wear a cape, like Sandman Port, and he used to sweep around. Um, uh, you know, he, the, he once had a fight in Soho Square, the one with the pagoda in it, when T. Hill, who was a great man who died in the Great War and who was an ultra-conservative theorist of modernity, she all made a point that Lewis didn't agree with. So Lewis grabbed him by the throat! And uh, Hume, who was an enormous lordship had no time for any of this nonsense, so he picked him up, and people wore turn-ups then, and he put him over the, um, the spikes in Soho Square and left him dangling there. And he said, that pagoda always looks different when you've seen it upside down. Um, so he was quite a character, and there's endless stories about him. His affair with Nancy Cunard, his affair with all sorts of other women, you know. Um, there's a famous, he was into having intercourse with Nancy Cunard. Then a painting came on her. He shoved her out naked into the street and got on with the painting. You know, he was a character, and very, very, very difficult to get on with. He also was in debt most of his life as well, because he had people dunning him all the time, bills coming in. He used to have flits between Kensington Studios, you know, these news flats and so on. He'd have a studio at the back, and he'd see some creditor be banging on the door at one end of the street, and he'd hear it, and he'd get skedaddle with the wife to another place. You know, so he was a bit of a rogue. I mean, he really was. He also took money from the British government, and didn't entirely do all the paintings that he was supposed to do, and then he would on-sell them before they could go to other museums, and so on. So he was a rascal, in a way. He was very, very difficult with his publishers, and he was a man who was, as Pamela remarked, pursued by the Furies. Uh, the first book on him was by a poet called Geoffrey Grigson, who was a total fan and adored Lewis and so on. But Lewis insisted on writing it himself, because he couldn't trust Grigson to give him the proper hagiographical treatment. Uh, and when Grigson included a few criticisms, <laughs> Lewis ripped it out of his hands and almost tried to eat it. And he said to him, once you came up against me, peeing against my leg, I should have seen you off with a stick, Grigson. And that was his first biographer. The most famous post-war biographers are Geoffrey Meyer and Paul O'Keefe. O'Keefe I know personally because he was chairman of the Wyndham Lewis Society for a while. And they used to meet in rather august solicitor's offices in Bertrams in the city of London well into the late 1980s. I once caused a lot of consternation, believe it or not, at the um, AGM of the Wyndham Lewis Society, because I got up and said, this society is based on a lie. And they went, what's he talking about? Who's that right? Um, and I said, it's based on a lie. He said, because the reason this society exists is because Lewis isn't acceptable. And the reason he isn't acceptable is because he wrote the book Hitler and because he's right-wing. And who went all the way? He's a conceptual anarchist. He's metapolitically right-wing. You know, I said, look, well, he's deconstructively and modernistically right-wing, but in all essential purposes, he's a radical, modernistic fascist, or he's fascistic. And I didn't use that word, they said, because the whole criticism that surrounds him is evasive of that. You see, there's a sort of black hole. You don't, it's like you don't mention the war, you know. You don't mention his political affiliations, because they're tiptoeing round it all. Um, for people who want to examine the text, Apes of God is available in Penguin. Revenge for Love is available in Penguin. 
the very pro-Islamic, actually, travel book, that's how it's described, um, what's it called, um, Journeys in Barbary, about his visits to North Africa, where he did unbelievable things. He insisted on tea in the desert, insisted on dressing in great coats with scarves in the middle of the desert. The Arabs thought he was totally mad, totally mad, but they let him to it, you know. And uh, um, the uh, tar is available in Penguin as well. Tar is an extraordinary novel, a Dostoevsky novel in many ways, written in these sort of bullet sentences in the first edition, some of the, he tried to change punctuation. He introduced the equals mark instead of semicolon and this sort of thing. That was done away with in the second edition. Um, the publisher that published that was Edith's Press. There was a small press in the centre of Paris that published Ulysses. No, it published Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by Joyce first, before anyone else did, because no one else would touch it. One publisher, Grayson and Grayson, a publisher that no longer exists, was sent a manuscript of Tar by Lewis, and they returned it saying, we can't publish your book because it's too strong. Too strong. And Lewis almost had to be restrained from going round it, hurling a brick through the window of Grayson and Grayson, because he was like this. But that, in some ways, is a metaphor for his career, because he believed that art should be about strength and glory. And one of his great criticisms of the modernity elements of which he championed was the idea that we have that our culture has become so wet and so effete and so self-critical and so implausibly plausible and is terrified of making an affirmative statement about anything and one of the theses of the human age is the cult of infantilism in the modern west the cult of the child the cult of the negro the cult of the outsider, the cult of the sexually inverted, and so on. All of which they anathematized and anatomized long before it became fashionable so to do. And so Lewis as an artist and as a writer is a, an American, a Briton, an Englishman, a Europeanist, a modernist who advocated ultimately the values of tradition within the vortex of force that he put forward. And I personally think he was a great man in his troublesome and vexatious way. His brain is preserved. Now, uh, because he's one of these people who left his body to medical science, when Paul O'Keefe did the second major biography of Wyndham Lewis, called Some Sort of Genius, he went to uh, one of these specimen labs in King's College, London, and they have preserved a section of the brain. W. Lewis, writer and artist. Then he got this computer number. And it's a section of the brain. You can see the tumour growing up underneath its base. It's an extraordinary photo. And the first three to four pages of this biography are O'Keefe describing this. O'Keefe's a lecturer in uh, English from Liverpool. And O'Keefe's quite liberal, and this is in some ways a mildly liberal revisionist biography of Lewis. But it's fair to Lewis, and it's factually true. It uncovers many things. And the thing about Lewis that he prizes most is the courage. He goes on writing. He goes on thinking. To write is to think and is to be Western, and is to be part, even as a radical modernist, of our tradition. When you're poor, when the lights have failed, when you can't see, when you can't even see what you're writing, you go on. I commend Wyndham Lewis to you. A British modernist life. Thank you very much.